Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you something. Uh, last night, me and the lovely Joanne went to see Dennis DeYoung sing the songs of Sticks at the El Rey. And it was really enjoyable. It was great because I, I just was on their website and the tickets were $5. And then the service charge, of course, made it twelve fifty, which always amazes me that the service charge is two time, almost two times the price of the ticket, well, one and a half. And we went there and it was so great because, you know, I'm 50 and Sticks was such a big part of my life growing up and I just loved them. And watching it was amazing. And it was also amazing that the crowd was, everyone was over 40. So everyone was cool. There was no drunk idiots. There was no one pushing the stage. And I have to tell you, Dennis DeYoung is um, 67 and he put on a show. He still has the pipes. He always had an amazing voice, but he just has those pipes still at that age. And I think it's like, you know, I'm a big Springsteen fan. I think as these rockers get older it's like anything if you do a job you just get better and i think it's just it was an amazing show but enough about that i have i have an amazing guest today i have shadow stevens how you doing shadow i'm doing excellent and getting better uh now are you a big music guy do you go to see live music am i a big i do um and i'm a big music guy i started k-rock uh here in los angeles and have always been into what's newest and best and most exciting i had a project for Seven years uh, called Rhythm Radio, the sound of the world in a good mood. And it was the first real global music network. We ended up being on the air in 30 countries and uh, on the Internet in seven languages. It was a victim, unfortunately, of the first big dot-com crash. Okay. And after that, they decided that the Internet was a fluke. Uh, people wouldn't invest in it, and advertisers wouldn't advertise. We had had a uh, a, nas- a global advertiser, Nestle, um, out of Veve, Switzerland, as our global, uh, for a year contract. It was really pretty incredible. And we did, you know, uh, pieces about great artists from around the world, and then we would put them up in what we called Nescafe coffee breaks. And they were 90-second little infotainment where you'd get an introduction to Carlinos Brown from Brazil and it was it was quite wonderful however what with the internet being a fluke I, it um, didn't last. <laughs> it's, it's so crazy. You know, I used to write for a, a web uh, a company. I would write jokes for a company, and it was the same thing. We did the cost per, per click thing. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, the Internet's not going to take off. And then, you know, 15 years later, I mean, it's, it's going strong. Now, i, I got to ask you, you, I found out you were like a 10-year-old prodigy in the, in the radio. Like in, in North Dakota, you grew up there, and you got into radio at a very young age. How you built? I heard you built your little uh, setup and all that. Who were your influences? I mean, I mean, because uh, you're in North Dakota and radio wasn't as huge as is as now. Who were some of the people that made you want to guide into that path you'd started? Um, Stan Freeberg, uh, I think probably, and some of those early uh, songs back in in the day where they would cut little pieces out of songs and then tell a story. You know, like, like the alien invasion and. Duck back in the alley. They would take a little piece from the song, and, and that always intrigued me. So I started making them on my dad's tape recorder. My uncle, who owned radio stations, heard that I uh, had this infatuation with it, and and he liked my little tapes. So he gave me a wireless transmitter that allowed me to transmit from one room to another. So I learned how to soup it up, and I put up a hundred foot antenna on my house. And then I could broadcast for a mile okay. in every direction. 
It's amazing back then, especially then because radio back then. I remember when we, when I was younger, we could sit there in I lived near Philadelphia, and we could if the angle was right on our AM, we could get the Cincinnati Reds baseball games, and it, it was amazing. We're like. Me and my friends would be like, oh, my God. Oh, totally. We're listening to Ohio. It's so far away. Oh, well, we were in North Dakota, and we were listening to uh, WLS in Chicago and KOMA in Oklahoma City and KAAY in Little Rock and XERB in Del Rio, Texas with Wolfman Jack. It was great. So you're sitting there as a kid, and then you know, you're doing this, and now where do you go from there? Because it's basically you... I don't think, was there a huge market in North Dakota, or did you say, <laughs> I'm just saying, do you have to get out of there? Well, but no, no I, um, I, you know, I had a very, I had a really Norman Rockwell childhood. My parents didn't drink, smoke, use drugs, curse, or fight in front of the kids. They owned clothing stores and toy stores and go-kart tracks and fireworks stands on the 4th of July. So I was very, uh, very tight family, and I really wanted to come to California. And I came out here when I was a uh, senior in high school because I wanted to be an artist. And I was accepted at Art Center School here in Los Angeles. And I came out here and I discovered that everyone in California was cool. And they all knew that I wasn't. (laughs) And I never mentioned it again. I went out to the University of North Dakota and went to work at a radio station uh, in Grand Forks. And for three years, until I had enough nerve... And then I was, I found a job in Tucson and went to the University of Arizona for two years and changed my major from art to uh, drama and journalism. Because I realized that I probably wasn't going to make a great living as an artist. I was pretty good, but there were people that were really good. What kind of paintings did you paint? I was interested in commercial art. I wanted to do illustration and mixed media and, uh, I would watch people in like an anatomy class and just go, it was like perfect. I'm going, I can do that, but it takes me about an hour longer. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is not, and I was putting myself through school with radio. So radio seemed the logical thing, radio and television. So when I got to Arizona, I had to learn how to, um, you know, the drama and journalism, learn how to write and learn how to perform. Did you enjoy it? I mean, coming from art, I mean, good art is so, you know, I mean, they all call it art, but art, you that you visually see when it's done, you know, acting, theater, you don't, you're not really sure always if someone accepts it, but you can t- look at a picture and say, okay, this is a beautiful painting. But if someone, there's people that say, eh, we don't know if you're that good. I mean, what, what did you, did you like? Did you like the acting in the, uh, well, for a while, I, I painted monster sweatshirts in a mall with, uh, with an airbrush. And that was one of the things I did to make extra money. I, ki- I kind of got into drama reluctantly. I was talked into trying out for a, a university play and got the lead. And I don't even know how. And, and I did pretty well. And I don't know how. I, I just, like, what am I doing? I'm, oh, okay, I have to memorize this. Okay, I have to do that. Okay, fine. I, um, I found that I liked it after okay. a period of time. It, it was, uh, but it was slow coming. And, and uh, doing television was appealing because it was more instant. You know, it was more, uh, you know, hosting and uh, being a part of television shows um, was pretty exciting for me. So you graduate Arizona State? Uh, no, I, I left Arizona uh, because I had a big job in Boston. Which was radio. That was radio. And so that came from someone, because you were doing radio in Arizona, so someone heard you and said, we want you to come to Boston? Yeah, I was, I was actually trying to get to California, 
Okay. And uh, it's a little backwards. <laughs> yeah, San Francisco or San Diego, I thought maybe I would qualify for. And I got this call saying, we'd like you to move to Boston. And it was a really good job. But it was cold in Boston. I was like, oh, God, I really didn't want it. But I decided that I had to do it. And so I'm driving across New Mexico, going to Boston, and stopped in Alamogordo, New Mexico, right outside the atomic testing range. There's a big uh, uh, fence there. It said, okay. do, danger, do not enter, atomic testing range. And I called from a phone booth and said, I'm, uh, I'm on my way to Boston. The guy said, yeah, great. Oh, that's great. We're really looking forward to seeing you. And uh, we, we are, <laughs> we're going to change your name. We, we've, you know, uh, there are names uh, that we've come up with. We're going to thinking of calling you Shadow Man or Shadow Lane. And I was horrified. It was the dumbest name I ever heard in my what, life. Was the Shadow, did, were you already had a nickname as Shadow? Or no. they, just said, they just said Shadow? No, no it, came, okay. it came from God. Okay. And, and uh, you know, it's a funny kind of thing because the god of radio at that time was a guy named Bill Drake. And he was the guy who created Boss Radio. And it was the, the number one stations all over the country were the Boss Radio format. And he decided that he was going to name me Shadow Stevens. By the time I got to Boston, two days later, after driving across the road 100 miles an hour, you know, thinking Johnny Lane, Rodney Rhodes, <laughs> you know, anything I could, looking for clues and billboards, I get to Boston, I've got a couple of options. And they say, oh, yeah, well, it's got, got, and they play me a jingle. It says, and now, ladies and gentlemen, Shadow Stevens. And I was horrified. I was humiliated. That's the dumbest name I ever heard in my life. <laughs> and, and just to survive the humiliation, I had to create a backstory. You know, where did this come from? Well, the, it came from God. Okay. Well, what does it mean? Well, it's uh, Native American. It's, uh, really, what tribe? I, well, I suspect Sioux because I'm from North Dakota. It means he who walks <laughs> with the light. Oh, really? He who walks with that? So in, when I, whenever I did interviews, it became this big mystery and this, uh, this narrative that uh, gave me some feeling of a sense of humor now, <laughs> behind the whole thing. Now, when it came out, was it always O-W? Because I know it's no, O-E now. Or no, did... It was always O-E. Okay, so it so came, they... it arrived as it was, okay. you know, uh, divined by God. It's got a great sound, because, I mean, there's a lot, like, in Philadelphia, there used to be, like, Mark the Shark, or, like, the, you yeah. know, if I would be, like, Coop Dog, you know. I, but yeah. it, the Gator with the heater. But, it's, yeah, but yours, Gator, you know, that's so funny. I actually did a com. I went to a comics reunion in Philadelphia two years ago, and Jerry Blavitt was still DJing. The guy's in amazing shape. He, amazing he, shape. I've seen him on the internet, and he, I listened to him when I was in college, and I thought, this guy is amazing. And he's still amazing. He's got that that quick yeah, talk. Gator with the heater. And, and the crowd, the crowd was funny, because it was, like, mixed. It was, like... Because it's a it was a bar it was a popular bar but there was like twenty one year olds dancing and there was like seventy year olds dancing and it was just seventy year olds and it was just so funny because he's up on the stands like and I'm like this guy's seventy something and the next morning he hosted the Philadelphia uh, parade the uh, whatever the Thanksgiving parade amazing he's he's really something I really admire him so you're in Boston how does Boston go I know you took the station to number one is that true. Well, I didn't take it to number one, but I, I was number one. Okay. I, I did really well there, and people received me well. And I also did television for the first time. So I, I was at first on Dave Garraway's Tempo Boston as the youth correspondent, talking about the Beatles and Paul is dead and stuff like that. And then they gave me a, um, 
a show called Gazebo that was kind of a dance show, interview rock stars and so on. I interviewed Steve Miller and, and Thelma Houston, and, and that kind of created a bit of a buzz. And a year after I arrived in Boston, I was then hired to come to KHJ in Los Angeles. And that was like the pinnacle of what you could do in radio, come to KHJ. And I um, didn't like Boston at all when I lived there. Later, I went back and found that I really quite liked it. But at the time, I think it was because I was growing up and, you know, wanted to be where it was warm that I was finding fault in everything. You know how your mind goes? You, it looks for some, everything wrong, and then yeah. it makes lists. Well, yes. I did that. I okay. did that for a year. I made lists of everything I hated about Boston, and I wrote a book called The Boston Book of the Dead. So I would chronicle everything I hated. And the day I wrote the last page, the next morning, I got this call from Los Angeles. Why would you come out to KHJ? They sent me a ticket that day. The next day, I got on a plane. I met with them that day, Tuesday. I uh, made a deal on Wednesday, got in a plane on Thursday, came back to Boston. They loaded up everything in my apartment, uh, or condo it was, and my car into a truck. I got in a plane on Friday, and on Saturday lived in Los Angeles. See, that's where you finally got that, where you wanted to come, though. I did. It's been great. It's, It's mysterious. You know, life is strange. So you start off in L.A., and you're on the station, and now what kind of show are you doing? Well, I was hired. I was supposed to be hired as the next full-time. I was a full-time part-timer. I would fill in for everybody on vacations and so on. And the deal was that I would get the next full-time position whenever that opened up. And uh, at that very time, when I came into Los Angeles, I was hired to do the Steve Allen show, a TV show. And um, I was his Ed McMahon, his on-camera sidekick. And we... um, and, and it did very well, and, and, and it was big time, and Steve Allen. Yeah, it's like, no, who's better ever than Steve Allen? So I was really intimidated. It was like broadcast news. I was sweating like a dog. They would come on, and they'd say, geez, you really sweat. And I'm like, yeah, I know. It's like, <laughs> like it was just pouring off my face. I, I was so out of my element. I was about 22 years old. And, um, and then the, the job came, came up. That one of the guys was let go, and I was supposed to get the next one, and they didn't give it to me. When I went in to ask them, they said, well, we don't know if you're more interested in television or radio. What? Exactly. Television doesn't help radio? What are you, out of your mind? Well, I said, all I want is in my contract that I will get the next full-time. They said, well, I can't do that. I said, well, goodbye. I'm not going to base my life on your whims. Plus, you had the, the TV show going, so it well, wasn't... no, the TV show was over. Okay. It lasted a short time, you know, but it was, you know, something that gave me some presence. Uh, so I quit, and I was hired by their competition, like within the week. And I went over there, and within a couple of months, they made me program director, and then my whole life changed. Well, yeah, I, I said because you were the program director in K Rock. What gave you the vision to bring in all these these bands? I mean, it was. I mean, you changed. The music, to, I mean, K-Rock still plays the same music years later. What made you, was it just a vision you had, or what, what made you sit there and go, we're well, going to change this? Well, I had a lot of success at KRLA, which was an AM station doing album rock. It was, so we were really involved in, in uh, being the first people in America to play people like David Bowie. And so when I went, when I was hired by K-Rock, which was a little AM station, the deal was that we were going to get an FM station, and then when we do that, we want to make you program director. I want you to do something original, something that is the next step beyond KRLA. So when I was made program director of K-Rock, 
they got the FM station, and I went in and I wanted a, a station that was all up all the time, all rock, 24 hours a day, like a party going on, and it was all cutting-edge music all the time. So we were going to discover the best new music from all, all over, you know, especially from the U.K., and we ended up being the first people to play Queen, and a list was endless. Uh, Iggy Pop and, and uh, all the punk rock bands, which were glitter. It was glitter first, and then punk. Rodney Bingenheimer would come in with his street people on the uh, Flo and Eddie show, which I started at that time. It was a really fun su- Sunday night party. And it would be exploring all this new music 24 hours a day, and it took off like a rocket and uh, then there were, this is an endless story, we can't go on with this, but, but um, it was badly managed, and there was, uh, people stopped being paid, and everybody was going bankrupt while we were one of the top stations in okay. town, and from zero to top station in six months, and I finally couldn't carry it anymore, so I quit, and then the whole staff quit, and the station went off the air for about a year and a half. I went over to KMET, did the same thing at KMET in six months. Became a giant Program rock director. station. Yeah. Okay. Did you miss being on air? Did you miss that? I was part of I was on t- on air okay, too. Okay. Yeah, I did. I did both and created the marketing and the and the advertising, the billboard campaign, all of that stuff, and um, lasted about a year there. And and then that was a big blow up. They wanted me to do things that I refused to do, and I quit. I started my production company, and I was doing radio commercials and radio shows from my studios and k-rock came back and asked me to come back to k-rock so i did that and i consulted them and did my best to steer it throughout the rest of the 70s and um and then i couldn't take it anymore and i quit and that was around 1980 okay and about that time i got the chance to do federated commercials and that was 1981 and uh, I was doing their radio commercials, and they said... Um, Which were also very cutting edge, if I believe. Oh, they, they absolutely were. They, that, was, uh, that was a really dramatic, uh, exciting time. What do you think it is in your psyche that makes you cutting edge? I mean, you, it, all this stuff is very cutting edge and innovative. I mean, is it, I mean what do you think it is? Because most people say, oh, you know, the marketing. People say, well, if you're a business major, you're not a business major. You're, you're a theater major and an art major. What do you, is it just something that you envision something, or just something click when you're walking down the street? Because everything's very innovative. Well, I try, what I try to do is, is reduce whatever it is I'm doing down to its basic elements and go, what can I do that's different? And so with the television commercial, it was the, the president of the company in this two-and-a-half-hour meeting we had um, where he said to the guy who was doing their television commercials how much he hated them. And he went over and over and showed them on a big screen and over and over again. He would show and he said, this is why I hate this. And he said, don't you understand? I want something simple and funny that makes me remember the name Federated. First time in over two hours, I said, how about this? And off the top of my head was, how about a Dan Aykroyd bassomatic pitchman, a parody of a pitchman, talks real fast, high energy, and at the end he says, Federated smashes prices, and he smashes a television with a giant circus hammer. He goes, that's kind of wild. That might work. I said, if it works, will you give me creative control, because I never want to do the same thing twice. People will want to kill me. Right. He goes, fair enough. So we did, and their business went up 500% that weekend. And we went on to do 1,100 different commercials. Wow, that's just amazing. It's just how did you, and you had constantly had to come up with different ideas. It was, it was like um, 
a Monty Python uh, troupe. It was uh, me and five guys who did everything. I had my own studios, own production, um, own post-production, and we would get together on Monday and brainstorm, brainstorming session, Monday morning, 10 a.m. How about this? Um, Rabbit Frog Bonanza. Rabbit Frogs ate our warehouse, and we're passing the savings along to you. And then we'd, everybody would laugh and go, let's do it. Okay, you get the frogs, set up the park where we're going to shoot, and then we would have uh, you know, maybe eight or ten commercials written that afternoon. We'd take the ideas that formed in the morning, flesh them out, then I would rewrite them and rewrite them while somebody else was planning the shoot, and we would be shooting by Wednesday, editing on Thursday, turn them in Friday, and do it again on Monday. And we would do six to eight a week, and it was uh, no commercial ever ran longer than 10 days. So it was wildly successful. People you know, would stand in line to meet Fred, Fred Rated, for like three hours. Uh, out the door, in, in their, they'd open up new stores. They went from 16 little stores in Southern California to 78 Best Buy superstores in five states in four years. And, uh, and we just kept cranking them out, cranking them out. It was wild. It's just great. It's the whole, just the concept. I mean, if you feel the pressure, but you know p- people are accepting it, so it's great. Well, you can see, anybody that's interested in it, there's a, there's a couple of um, videos on YouTube. There's a long-form one called a Laugh Now, Think Later on uh, YouTube. And then there's another one, a, a half-hour version, that is called Bludgeon Advertising that has all the best of the commercials and you know about a little bit about the team and how it came together it's it's pretty entertaining well it's, it's great i mean it's it's very it's a great story and it's very creative and that's awesome so we're going to fast forward a little bit you're you know you're you're doing that so where do you go after you do the creative for that company well the guy <clears throat> a guy that uh, owned atari came in and bought federated and fired 800 people the first day and and uh, the next week, he met with me, and he said, yeah, I want you to do those commercials, but I'm not going to pay you that kind of money. I'm like, okay, goodbye. I had a lot of other things going. Things had, had because, you know, it was the subject uh, of a, the whole Federated campaign was in Time Magazine. It was a two-page story in Time Magazine. It was, it was really a phenomenon. And so I had options. Now, all of a sudden, Hollywood Squares had asked me, and I turned them down three times because I didn't want to be an announcer. And they said, well, okay, we'll put you in a square. And I went, okay, fine. So I go do that. And then I had a three-picture deal with Dino De Laurentiis to do movies. And I thought, this is my, my one shot to maybe do some acting, which was a dream for me. So I, um, I had that going. And, um, and so I, uh, I, I turned them down. And then eight months later, nine months later, they came back to me and they said, how, uh, how much would it cost to have you do those commercials again? And I got to tell them, you don't have enough money because now I had other things. And right. I didn't want to work for this scumbag. Yeah, because you walk in and we're not paying. They file 800 people. You're like, eh, you, don't, you don't want to work uh, for pe- that. People had been there 10 years right. without any severance. It, it was really ugly. So I... Um, so I went on, and I, you know, I went off and did this movie, and then Hollywood Squares got real successful and became like the number one show in the country. And well, I remember watching that. It was always like you were, you were the epitome of California cool. And I'm going to say it like we're watching it because you had the cool hair and you had the tan and you had the cool shirts. And kids were back east watching, and we're like, God, that's and you had the voice, and it was just like you were the center square when you were the center square. You know, I was I, Joan Rivers was, was the center. I was um, you were up, right below okay, Joan. But it was just that was a thing. Like we're like, ah oh, man, that's that's cool. Like. I 
and, and he went back east and like, and you had cool shirts. You always had cool clothes. And for us, you know, we're like, that was the hardest part about the show is that you know you would do five on a five in a day, and the biggest problem was coming up. You carry in five change of wardrobe, and other than that, it was hilarious. You know, Rick Rosner was the producer, and he would come in and we say, "Okay, here are what the you know they wouldn't tell you the answers; they tell you the questions, and then you have like bluff answers, which was my whole thing was doing bluffs and and uh, or joke answers. You, know, you could do whatever you want to do, but they give you like some you know material, and you go out and laugh all day long. It was fantastic." Then we'd go on, on location, we'd shoot in the Bahamas, or we'd shoot in Miami, or, or Radio City Music Hall in New York, and sold out in, in uh, like an hour. It's just amazing. And it was such a big show. I mean, all of a sudden, were you getting noticed everywhere and recognized? I mean, it's something that you had to look. And it's, it's so funny, and I talked to past guests who were in any TV back before there was 8,000 channels, that if you were in any show that was somewhat successful, there was so many viewers because you didn't have the choice to watch 8,000 things and people were, on Hollywood Squares, people were celebrities. It's not like in now with reality TV where people have become celebrities because of the reality TV. The game show, you were all successful people. But it must have, I mean, have you, had you been recognized a lot before that? or did Well, you- uh, on the West Coast, everybody thought I was Fred. Okay. You know, Fred rated, hey, on the street. You know, it was, it was like a big deal on the West Coast. Uh, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, um, but then Hollywood Squares made it national, and so on the on the success of all of that, then I got American Top Forty, which was then all over the it grew to be all over the world. It was 110 countries, a billion people a week listening, and they would fly me around the world to promote it. We'd go to Norway or or Rome or or um, Hong Kong or Tokyo and. And the radio station would meet us there and then take us all to all the great spots. It was phenomenal. And, uh, and all of this thing, like one thing cascaded into another. And then came Dave's World. Which, by the way, if people have even seen it, I don't know if you can get it on a video. It was a great show. Because I, 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 was, uh, I knew of Dave Barry's work. And then Harry Anderson was always so funny. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was, it's one of those shows. It's like I had uh, Amy Pites, Pete's from uh, Carolina in the City. It was one of those shows. Where mm-hmm. it was like, they were just solid well-written shows that were on. I think Dave's ran for four years. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, they and Caroline in the City was some of the same people yeah, and it was Dave's World. Okay, it was just, they were just such really solid shows. And it just, uh, it just, it, I don't think it ever got its a due as to, I mean, did it make the top 10? It was, uh, I think, top 20. Okay. I'm not sure if it was, if it ever made top 10, maybe right in the first year. Uh, but it was a solid top 20 for the four years that it was on. Then what was that like for you, crossing over now, you're doing a sitcom? I mean, you, you sit there, you're traveling with the, the radio. You've, you've had like 87 hats on by now. I mean, you've had so many different gigs and just successful in them. But going to TV, as I, I mean, was it something different that you had to... It wasn't you. Like before, though, the top 40 it was a shadow in Hollywood Squares. You sort of stole it. You stole it. It was you and Jones stole the show. But now you were playing a supporting role. Was that easy for you to transition into? And did you go back on some of your acting work from college to get better at that? It was more when I had a chance to do um, tracks, the movie. I, I took it pretty seriously. And I studied with um, Nina Foch, who is a Stella Adler, uh, like um, famous acting coach. Um, former uh, movie star 
and she was brilliant. And I learned the, all the Stanislavski stuff, and then I studied um, with a couple of other coaches, and, and I really tried to learn you know, something about the craft. I don't know how great I ever got, but I did learn some things, and I uh, gave it my best. And got a lot of different things. So Dave's world, by that time, I uh, you know, learned how to do something. And then it was also calling back on all those you know, hundreds of commercials where I'd play different characters and do different things. So being in front of the camera was not a problem for me. Now, as Dave's world was going, were you also doing America's Top 40? Yeah. Doing, so how does someone handle time? I mean, time management. Your time management skills must be impeccable because... You have the shows, you have this, you've, I mean, how did you keep everything sorted? Um, I had help, you know, I had, you know, people at my sister worked for me as my assistant for a long time and uh, helped me organize and make sure that I got from one thing to another, but it wasn't uh, daunting. And I, I think my, my biggest um, gift in life has been enthusiasm. I have, I was just born with a lot of enthusiasm, a lot more enthusiasm than talent, I think, but, but willingness to work and enthusiasm I got from my dad. And, um, and that allowed me to like apply myself and usually work harder than most of the people around me. I would prepare more. I would spend more time. I'd be early and stay late. And, um, I've always been that way, but I like it. You know, I like to work and I'm, I'm still the same way today. All the things that I'm working on today are every day is something. We're going to talk more about your career, your acting and everything, but I want to know, how did you get into writing children's, book, children's books? Because I know, I know you do that now, and it's something that, uh, it's, it's just another, you know, one of your tricks of the trade. I mean, how did you, did you, you go back on your journalism, when you were a journalism major? I mean, what made you decide to write children's books? Now, for a long time, um, back in the 80s, one of the things I did is I had a friend who was a producer, and we would write music together. And I, uh, I always liked writing verse. About 1990, when my kids were uh, 91, somewhere in there, my kids were real, real young. And I woke up one morning saying button-sided hooey out loud. That woke me up. I thought, that's the weirdest thing that's ever come out of me. And I wrote it down, and I thought, that looks like Dr. Seuss. I should, I should write something for my girls, Dr. Seuss. So I started writing the story of the button-sided hooey, and it became this Alice in Wonderland epic. I mean, it's a trilogy. It takes an hour and 20 minutes to read out loud. It's all verse. It all goes on and on and on, and it's a, this adventure in another dimension. And I finished it, and it's a chapter book. You know, so, it's, so it's not, it broke all the children's book rules, and I knew it would never be published. So I thought, well, I've got to create a book that's a nice, simple, linear story, that will pave the way, so I'll do the button-sided hooey someday. So I write this book called The Big Galoot. And The Big Galoot is a little engine that could. The Big Galoot is a story about bullying and never giving up. And the Big Galoot shows up at Middleburg School, and he has f size 42 hands, the biggest hands anybody's ever seen. And the kids laugh at him, and then they make fun of him, and they mock him, and then they throw pies in his face, and they trip him, and, they, you know, and he says, I'm a galoot, but I have good luck can't get me down. I never give up. And that becomes a chant through the book okay. as things go on and on. Pretty soon they'll go off to the mountains and, and a storm breaks out and the wolves are hollowing and the kids are running for their lives. And, and guess who steps up to try and save the day? A giant hand is thrown out from up over on a ledge and grabs the kids and holds on tight and almost saves them, but not 
quite. And they fall into a roaring stream. And then he swims upstream to try and save them and almost saves them, but not quite. And his efforts is like Buster Keaton. He's, he's a guy that just keeps trying, keeps right. trying. And because he keeps trying, the day is saved. But he's not really a hero. It's only because he keeps trying. So I did this book about not giving up. And it was signed to be uh, to come out on um, Dove Publishing in 1997. And as it was going to press to be printed, there was a hostile overthrow of the company. The CEO and the president were fired. They canceled the children's division, and it took me 10 years to get my book back. So it went through one thing after another. I get the, I get the rights back. My family believes in it. Let's get it printed ourselves. So we, we have it printed in China and have thousands brought in. There's a small version, and there's a, uh, a box set version. It's gorgeous stuff. And no distributor would talk to me. They would look down their noses and go, oh, no, if you had, if you had, six, or eight, if you had six or eight titles, perhaps we would talk to you. But no, 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 we don't do one-offs. So I couldn't get any distribution. We tried everything. And so, you know, I have Whoopi Goldberg cred, uh, a quote in it that raves about it, and, and Henry Winkler and Dick Clark when he was still alive. And, and uh, didn't make any difference, couldn't get it off. And, and to this day, it's the, most, it's the most unsuccessful, successful book in history. And uh, there's a great um, iPad version that has narration and sound design in it. When you, when you look at the page and you hear me read it, it has all the, the wolves howl and the thunder cracks and comes off the page. And as, you, as I read it, each word highlights on the page. It's fantastic. The iPad is amazing for some of these books. Like I had Robbie Benson on the show and his autobiography, I, they sent me the book and I read it, but my girlfriend was reading it on the iPad. And uh, it's just amazing because it's like, he talks about like one-on-one and then you can go to the clip and just, it's amazing how technology, especially for like a children's book that has a good story. It's amazing now because kids, I mean, kids have shorter attention spans. Totally. I mean, a kid trying to read a book or just sitting there getting a book read to them, they're thinking, I want to do this. So it must be great for you to actually see it. It comes to life, which, you know, a good, as a, you know, a good person who reads it well, it's going to come to life anyway. But the way kids are now, they're not, they're like, yeah, but I mean, that must make you feel great when you see that. It's just uh, something that you believed in and now it's, it's, it's yeah, it's out there and, and it's available and everybody who's ever, all the, uh, all the reviews on Amazon are all five star, you know, it's got great, um, a great following and uh, it's available. It's out there. You can check it out. It's uh, easy to find the big galoot. Are you going to write more or is it something you... I have written five. Okay. Now the, uh, the button sided hooey trilogy is still sitting. What, in a is a, what is a button? What does it look like? What, what's a, in your head? What's a button sized hooey look like? The story is this. She goes into she she finds herself in another land, the land of Wahoo. And in everyone in the land of Wahoo is filled with fear. And so she's got to find the hooey to find out to free everyone from fear. So she, uh, along the way, she gets uh, uh, two companions, a whiffet and a whim. Uh, the whiffet can sniff it, and the whim doesn't know much, but he has ideas. And they trek off, and they come up with, and everything is bi- built out of a real word. You know, there are snivelers and guzzlers and, and the sputtering squirt that guards the bottom line, and, and this whole land of Wahoo is like, a, uh, like an hourglass. They're uh, down at the bottom, or like a spine. And they have to get up to the top of the spine to find the hooey. And who, the hooey is, is in the crown at the top. And they find their, they ultimately get there in, in the story. And when he appears, 
he um, he ultimately takes this form that's like a giant elephant, and the elephant towers over the little girl, and um, looks down his nose. She says, "If you're so all-knowing and wise, why not shrink and come down to my size?" He says, "Too big or too small, all the same in Wahoo. You can I can contract to your smallness or make you big too." And he shrinks down to her size, and she wants to know how to free people from fear. So he asks her a riddle, and she has to solve the riddle in order to do it. And when she solves it correctly, his body drops off like an old coat, and out of his chest stands a naked truth. He says, I'm sorry, I'm naked out here in the cold, but a truth can't, is, you know, is, you're either a truth or you're co- covered with lies. And he gives her the secret, and the secret to freedom from fear is in the word called sharing. And when you give of yourself, you get you you stop being afraid, and he and it's all explained in verse a Dr. Right. Seuss type of, of of verse, and she ends up flying on the back of a wings of a butterfly back home to her to her uh, backyard, and she's been gone for ten minutes. Now, when did you ever think of doing that on the audio version? Because I mean, just you reading it, you can tell. I can tell when you're reading it that you it's a labor of your love. It's like anything when people, I think when we write something, it's, it's very personal, but I can tell you, you just enjoy, you know, versing that. Have you ever put it on tape or something? I like have. That? I, I've, I've just the narration. Yeah. Part. Cause that'd be, that'd be great. And, and it's, it's pretty cool. It, it, she, um, um, she, she meets a malarkey and the malarkey is this big square shouldered, square jawed guy who looks down at her and he goes, I'm a malarkey, one of a kind, the finest you'll find. My pedigree spans 99 generations, all of us bred with the best educations. We're smarter, we're... And he goes on and on and, and talking, and he just, uh, like, just, who could you possibly be? Are you important? Are you well-known or important to me? And, and she looks into his house and sees that it's a house full of mirrors, and in the in the mirror, she can see that the, his his jacket is torn in the back, and on and in the back of him, sitting on his spine, is this tiny little gray man, and he's working the body. Well, clearly, she can't stay there very long. Right, getting out of the house becomes something important, and it's like it's things like this, the things you have in real life, where you meet people who present themselves in certain ways with great conviction, and that, and you should do this, and you should do that, and how do you get past these things to stay on your quest to see your vision? And that's what the story is about. What's well, great is it's, it's very motivational too. I mean, it's very honest, which is always great. I also want to talk about your artwork. Now, I saw on your website. Now, this is going, you are an artist now. I mean, you produce a lot. You paint a lot, right? I do. Well, not a lot, but, but I do uh, regularly. Because um, what I like is in this thing was the ancient historic artwork. Now, how did that come about? Oh, well, that, that's part of a suite that I did. And I can't even read. You know, I, I do these things and, I, and, I, and I'm consumed. I'm really an addictive personality. You know, I, I, you know, I do it and, it's, and I wanted to do something that was kind of a parody of art. Uh, of artists, you know, because you go to a gallery and the and the and and the man in the gallery talks, you know, and he's got this is neo expressionism, you know, of the early, and you go what, and they, and they right. have this explanation. <laughs> so I decided to write my own explanations, and they would be really long and really intricate and really just filled with with wordplay, 
And so the, uh, the whole thing of the Chronicles of the Flaming Tenderfoot, um, I, it is um, you know, an expression of that kind of thing. And I have this, um, it's all metaphors and they're optical illusions. I created this, they're, they're giant canvases, like four by five foot canvases. And what I did is I'm pretty good in Photoshop. So I would create things in Photoshop, print them, and then cut them into hundreds of pieces and then glue them into these kind of kaleidoscopic explosions okay. of, of multimedia um, so that it looks 3D and, it, and it's uh, kind of like Escher where um, things uh, may or may not be what they seem or, the, or if you stand back, they take on another view and, and they're kind of trippy. And so I did seven of them and it's a whole thing about, uh, and it's all about, it's, it's almost the same thing about not giving up um, as he, uh, you know, Rocky Waters is, is, is the name of the title character. And the Rocky Waters character is this football player from the 1930s who's kicking like a field goal with his arms out and his leg in the air. He's just kicked and he's trying to kick his way through, through reality. And so he appears in different ways in all of the pieces. And you can see little tiny examples of it on my website on shadow.com. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great, you have, there's a lot of, areas you can check out on your website which is good it's very uh, there's a lot of a lot of electronic art too a lot of things that i did for different projects of mine that are kind of fun now i want you to explain to me about what blackout television is blackout television came as a result of mental radio which i did for a couple of years and really loved it was um, which was an exploration of the inexplicable it was all of this it's it's like i would interview um I interviewed a Himalayan yogi who meditates in the caves in the Himalayas. And I'm like, this is fantastic. And he was the most brilliant guy I've ever, ever talked to in my life. And this, I, was, this was an actual person, not a character. An actual, actual person, person. Is it, although it sounds like something I would yeah, make up. Exactly, the way you're talking <laughs> about thinking, yeah, that sounds like well, that. And that's the thing about mental radio is that I found people that sounded like the people I made up. Okay. Um, I interviewed a physicist who talked about the theoretical possibility of the earth being hollow. And the earth not just being hollow, but being a crust in which the, the, the um, gravity is in the crust pulling in and out at the same time. So it is theoretically possible that there could be an environment on the inside of the earth with a uh, hot center in w that would sustain life. And he was out to prove, you know, what is kind of a, a, a mythic story that even the Nazis were investigating about the hollow earth. And so that was a fantastic interview. Then I interviewed a guy that was um, a, um, who's, who was abducted by uh, extraterrestrials, or visited by an extraterrestrials in 1997. And he said, and I grew two shoe sizes overnight. Fantastic. I couldn't have made up a better story. How did, how did you find these people? Because they're just, did, I had they, a research did they seek guy. you out or did you just say, okay, find me no, a once crazy I, story and go? The whole idea was to do coast to coast, you know, a, a, a story about the um, abnormal, the inexplicable, the, you know, um, uh, the occult, uh, conspiracies, everything, is and treat it as if Monty Python was doing it. Is that something really that interests funny. you, though? Do, are you, have you always been interested in the occult and the... Is oh, yeah. Like, okay. Oh, yeah. I love all of that stuff. And I love out-of-body experiences and the spiritual and, and everything that, uh, that is otherworldly. So I, I had a guy whose whole job was to find people and book them. And, and it's all job. still there. You can go mentalradio.net. All of the programming that we did, um, I don't know, 100, 100 and I don't know how many shows. 
Um, and they're and some of them are really funny. There's a really great piece. But anyway, so this um, I I did this and then walked away from it and to start something new. And blackout television happened when I was researching um, improv actors at the Groundling Theater, and I ran into Karen Mariyama, who is a director there, and she and I was telling her how great you know some of these people were, and she says, No, no, tell, I'm telling you. Come Monday night. Every other Monday night, they do the black version. This black cast is unbelievable. Jordan Black. It will blow your mind. Yes. And so he, um, I went, okay. And I saw it was the funniest thing I'd seen in 10 years. It was laugh out loud, lockjaw laughter. It was fabulous. I went, I've got I've to create something for a television using these guys. So I, I approached them and said, would you like to do a podcast series that would be, uh, we would do an audio and develop the characters and the ideas in order to take it to television to make it a Larry Sanders show type show uh, on the air and behind the scenes of a black entertainment network like BET. So there's a fictitious network called Black Television Network, BTN. Okay. And BTN has programming. And the morning show, this is like Good Morning America, is Morning Blackout. Blackout, it's black television for, you know, African-Americans who love to get up in the morning. And then there's a takeoff of The View called As Black Men, all black men talking about topics of the day. There's a Judge Judy show called uh, Lady Justice with Judge Evangeline Cotter. All made up. They play all the characters. We just started a new one that we haven't broadcast yet, which is a takeoff of a late night show like The Tonight Show called Black of the Night. Okay. And all of them sound real, like you're listening to television. They play all the characters. They make up all the hosts. They, they, all of the guests. If Wendy Williams is on, they're playing Wendy Williams. If Oprah's on, every, they're playing these, all these different characters. And developing this content in order to take it to television, which is where, where we're at right now. But right now, there is, an, there is a, a, uh, an iPhone app and an Android app. If you just search Blackout Television in the app stores, you can download them onto your phone, listen in the car. It's great entertainment. They're very funny. Some of them are just brilliant. No, it's great. I have a bunch of new stuff to listen to. I always, I always love to listen. To, I, I'm going to definitely check out the mentalist stuff because that just the, the guests just sound amazing. And just as you interviewing them, it must be. How would you do your research to interview some of these people? I know you have a research guy, but you're talking to someone who's talking about his shoe size. Being two feet bigger. Oh, you know, I talked to him for almost an hour, and I tried to poke holes in this veneer. I thought, this, this guy's going to get this shit on. Come on, please. And I could not. He had a, a, he had a litany of terminology. He had, he had you know, um, the sanctioned races. There are sanctioned races. Sanctioned extraterrestrials. <laughs> there are, you know, there there are the ones that we must fear, you know. And of course, all the stuff like the Greys and the reptilians and all of that kind of stuff. But there are, according to him, something like four thousand alien ships surrounding the Earth at every moment. And he proudly told me at the end of the interview that he is now an artist on sixty-three planets. Went, well, that's How do you fantastic. keep a straight face? I did. I was like, are you serious? And and the really really funny thing about it is that his artwork is pretty good. <laughs> what was his name? That's that's the first one I'm looking up. What, I, you, I, you know, I don't know, but there is a there is a place on um, on mental radio uh, at the top of the page. Look across the top, and it'll say. And I can't remember. I haven't looked at this for a while, but um, 
it's like the best of. You can okay. find the best of everything, the best of all the features. We did a, uh, a feature uh, called Daphne Van Horn's, um, uh, what was it, Daphne Van Horn's terminology, for, uh, uh, no, for the urban impaired, terminology for the urban impaired, something like that. And it's, uh, you know, our, our expert on urban um, uh, slang. Okay. Who would tell us every week, you know, the, the new terminology that people needed to know. And then it become these these wacky features where she would go on location to, you know, urban word festivals in Mumbai. And we would, she would be reporting from the streets of Mumbai. And at the end of the episode, you know, she's almost trampled by stampeding elephants and police. On, you know, it's, it's crazy. I got to check. I love, I love very, it. It's a lot of fun. Now, I see on your website, you, you met the president. No, it only looks like that. Oh God, I thought it was. I was, I was all excited. I was. Well, there's lots of things I do. You know. I know, but I was like, it's good. Okay, now tell us about it. what is a Fred rated. Well, Fred rated is is Fred. Oh, that's your thing, Fred. And now you've the best of on your website, so you can check out the. Uh, yeah, that's all of you know the best of the of the um, 1100 commercials we did over a period of like six years. The website. There's so much stuff to look on this, and now you you work. You're the announcer for the Craig Ferguson show. But yes, yes. How did that or eight, eight years. Well, I, you know, what's really funny is, and I had met Craig, and I really liked him. And I, uh, when he started doing the show, I would uh, TiVo it, and I would watch it the next day because I loved his monologues. I thought he was, you know, he's completely different from everybody else. Right. He's like um, Pee Wee Herman, you know, on acid or something. He's, it's, he's really something. And so um, about a year later... My um, my agent called from New York, and he said, "We I have um, a call from the Craig, the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. They'd like you to be the announcer. Do you have any interest?" I went, "Yes, yes, I'll be there today. <laughs> what time you want me there? I'm absolutely." So I went in and met with them, and they they um, offered me this job, and I like uh, turned into eight years. What's that schedule like? It I I have a an extraordinary job. I am I have to be there, and I do a little recording. Now and then, you know, the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson brought to you by Verizon. Verizon, the whole network working for you. Can you try that again? The Late Late Show. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's terrific. <laughs> or little features that, that introduce him. But it's not demanding. But every word is hand polished syllable by syllable. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, you also Cabo Radio. What is that? For a year, I created for Sammy Hagar a um, an a, uh, internet radio station called Cabo Wabo Radio, and uh, designed and built a recording studio in Cabo San Lucas at the Cabo Wabo Cantina, and another one here in L.A. at my own place, and uh, and so that if anything went wrong in Cabo, I would take over from Los Angeles, and created a. Um, it was another all up all the time, all energy, all party because it's the Cabo Wabo Cantina. Right. So it's got to be a party around the clock. And it was all rock and, and really new music from all over the world. It was kind of um, like a rock version of a rhythm radio uh, with all, uh, all kinds of jingles and ideas and, and personalities. I came up with an idea instead of having somebody down there all the time as a disc jockey. Uh, we came up with a, a way to fly in like great disc jockeys from all over the country, great personalities, and give them a two-week vacation in Cabo. They could stay at the, um, uh, you know, locally on the beach 
and uh, eat at the Cabo Wabo Cantina and give them money, uh, you know, to, uh, to just to have fun. And the only thing they had to do is go be on the air every night. And we did that and had some great people come down. And the cost of doing it all was less than hiring one person to live down there and be there all the time. So it became a wildly successful uh, in a very short period of time. And went, it was on uh, Live 365. And it went from number 10,000 of radio stations to uh, number one alternative station online in the world in uh in just a matter of months, like uh, four or five months. And it, it, it broke down when I went to have it, um, I went to Sammy and I said, look, um, we've got a great, we can make money with doing this and you can start, stop coming out of pocket. I've got a salesman who's sold to the Prince of Dubai and to Steve Wynn in Las Vegas. I mean, he's a world-class guy. He says, I can sell this in a heartbeat. And uh, he said, I'm not paying anybody to, to sell. So I go back to the guy and I say, look, he's not going to pay anybody to sell. How about if, um, and he goes, look, I'll do it for free. I can do this uh, for 30%. So I go back to Sammy and say, he'll do it for 30%. He goes, 30%? Fuck him. Can you say that on here? Yeah, it's not okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's really It's internet. And, and I knew that it was doomed. You know, this is not going anywhere. This is like... Um, okay, I've got to start making other plans. And it was shortly thereafter that I left and then started Mental Radio. How did you meet Sammy Hager? Um, it was through a guy that I, that I hardly knew. And, um, and he ended up being a problematic man and who was fired. They, people down in Cabo didn't like him at all. And um, that didn't help the uh, relationship and the, uh, the saga of Cabo Wabo Radio. And, um, and so he went away, and, and he had a big uh, drug and alcohol problem. Okay, which I understood. Ben. Well, we have about five minutes left. I want to ask you now. Your your daughter's an actress. Yes. Now, did 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 you encourage her? Did she see you saying, "Oh God, my my dad has this great life"? What and were you were you happy she got into the, the entertainment world? She was born to be in the entertainment world. But I have two daughters, and they're both extraordinarily beautiful. Um, my younger daughter, China Rose. Um, hasn't shown any interest in being, she's more interested in the beauty industry and is going to school and, uh, and working at a salon in Beverly Hills. However, she, you know, you never know about right. life. Um, she's just too gorgeous not to be. Amber, on the other hand, used to put on all the shows at every party, Christmas, Thanksgiving, 4th of July, there would always be a show at our house. And she would gather all the kids together and she would figure out the lights and the costumes and the choreography and you'll do this and we'll sing that and here's the music and you do the music and you'll know, plan out the whole thing. And it was, and she would, if she made a mistake, she would just laugh. She was never embarrassed. So she would do these things and this went on year round. I mean, every time there was a major party, Amber would put on a show with all the kids of all the other families. So she, and I, we knew Okay. You know, she's unstoppable. And then she um, uh, got out of high school and um, went into a, a little acting group. And within a year, got Greek, which was an ABC Family right. uh, series. And that lasted four years. And she was really good in it. It's a very good series. Uh, well-written, well-performed. 
And uh, then since then, she's done a whole bunch of uh, guest starring things. And she's now in 22 Jump Street that's coming out with Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill um, this in June. And she was just signed to uh, Kevin Hart's new uh, sitcom on ABC called Keep It Together. And that's looking like it could end up being one of the big hits of the year. Must be awesome. Must be, it must make me proud. I mean, you're doing, unbelievable. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, you think, you know, because people say, you know, well, our kid's going to act, but she's had all the success. But I think it comes from you also because you've had a very good work ethic. And you, I think, you know what it is? It, and and it, it all it sounds like it goes sequentially. You know, you, uh, you lose this and this. Generally, that's not true. There's a lot of time. There's failure upon failure upon failure. And I have to hand it to her. She handled failure really brilliantly and uh and and as a matter of fact um the week before she was signed to do the kevin hart thing she was on the uh, she had auditioned five times to to be one of the main characters in how i met your dad coming off how i met your mother same group really brilliant they're all excited about it and uh she was down the line did a screen test and then that weekend i got a message from her I didn't get it, and she was crushed. So, you know, dads, remember one door closes, another one opens. Don't let your mind make a list. Don't let it look and add up all the things that have gone wrong. Don't let it tell a story about what the future is going to be. Just, like, show up. You know, something good is about to happen. Think good things happen to us. Three days later, they called her without, without a screen test, without an audition, said, we'd like you to be this, and uh, here's the deal. It's like... You never know. You never know. So what do you have coming up? Anything uh, Anything special? Do you still doing a lot of voice work or what's up with you? Yeah, I do a lot of uh, voice work and, you know, I'm uh, you know, doing commercials and, and um, anything I can get. I love doing that. And uh, we're uh, pitching Blackout Television um, to BET in the next uh, couple of weeks. And uh, there's been interest from a bunch of other different networks. I have... Um, I have a bunch of other shows I haven't even talked about, and, but they're all really interesting. And there's uh, some interest in one of them at Spike, and there's an interest in another one at HLN, and, uh, and another one with, um, that is a kind of um, a superhero kind of okay. story that I can't go into, but it's, it's pretty terrific. Now, your website is shadow, S-H-A-D-O-E.com. Yes. Now, do you, do you tweet? I uh, do have Shadow Stevens okay. um, at Shadow Stevens, and um, yeah, I do. I don't do a lot, but well, you're you know. so busy. I mean, you have like eighty-seven thousand things going on. To it's keep like up with everything, you, you know. It's it's like, yeah, a little want, of this, a little of that. I want to thank you for coming on. I'm, I'm glad. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm bummed that you got something canceled, and I, I was bummed my guests got canceled. But just how the universe works, as you said, I, I, know, said, I, I responded yeah. to you. People, if you don't know, Shadow said he could do next week. So we had going back and forth, and I was booked next week, and I had a guest canceled. So I just at the last minute, I said, my mom said, just ask. So I said, can you come on today? And you did. And it was very great. It to was meet great. You. And you're terrific at this. This thank is you. like really easy. You made it fun and I uh, totally enjoyed it a lot. I want to thank you so much for coming on. My and pleasure. Pe- people check out his website, S-H-A-D-O-E.com. Some really great stuff on there. Also, check out, uh, check out my website, coopertalk.net. I have about 250 episodes up on there. Also, if you have an Android phone, go to the Play Store, type in Cooper Talk. You get the Cooper Talk app. The, the app for the iTunes and not in the store. It takes too long, so I'm not going to go over that. But you can go to iTunes or you can go to Stitcher Radio, type in Cooper Talk, one word. All my episodes are up there. 
Also, Cooper at Indy100.com. Please uh, send me a message. See, you know, some guests you would like. And don't forget, every Tuesday at, used to be Playa de Zul, now it's Jimmy's uh, place in on San Fernando and Burbank between Grismer and Amherst. It's Crappy Comedy Night, and I host that, so come out and see. I get some great comics coming in there. And yeah, and as I said, follow me on Twitter. I'm always trying to tweet. I like to tweet, and I like to make you people smile. So anyway, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget. Drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. You guys have a great, great weekend, and I'll see you next week.